Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Prospect Lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. Before coming to the UK, I was in a relationship for eight years in Trinidad. I must resort to my anti-depression modus operandi. I reach planes of agro-geekery beyond my wildest dreams. Blaming patients for their own self-loathing just adds insult to injury. I remember whiling away hours of my childhood tending to my cyborg neopets. There's a massive, a hundred-year-old fig tree which bears beautiful big leaves. We wear the tight gag of place and time. Welcome to Prospect Lives, our brand new podcast. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor of Prospect magazine. When I arrived at Prospect, I wanted the new magazine to be about people as well as ideas. But when I thought about adding a life section to the back pages, it wasn't quite the right fit. I soon realised we didn't need a life section, we needed a live section, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a new family of regular Prospect writers filling us in on what they've been thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in February. Anglican priest Alice Goodman had just returned from a holiday while actor and writer Sheila Hancock was reflecting on the Prime Minister's unsatisfactory haircut. Rebecca Lawrence, a psychiatrist with bipolar, was examining the unexpected benefits of alcohol, while Jen Zedda, Serena Smith, was considering giving up on her parting forever. This month, while some of our writers have been adventuring across the globe, farmer Tom Martin hopped across the pond to an American farming conference, others have been finding joy in small pleasures. Sheila Hancock in the classical music of Beethoven and Ravel, Serena Smith in the nostalgic, silly videos of the early internet, while other writers have been considering important issues, ex-England captain and psychoanalyst Mike Braley reflects on racism in cricket while Jason Thomas Fornillier, an expert by experience in the asylum system, explores the strain that being displaced can place on romantic relationships. But let's begin with Farmer Tom, who discovered that American farmers have both a different wardrobe and philosophy from their British counterparts. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't believe half of the things that happened at an American farmers conference I attended in January this year. A positive lateral flow test just a few days before my booked flight to the US led to some pricey alterations to my schedule. However, 
Eventually, I made it to Louisville, Kentucky to join around 650 farmers from across the US at the National No-Tillage Conference 2022. Now, the British farmer's wardrobe has seen a cultural change in recent years from the checked shirt and tweed jacket of the 20th century to the checked shirt and shuffle body warmer of the modern era. Although at a UK farming conference, one could expect to see plenty of both the traditional and modern varieties of waist-up attire twinned with chinos or corduroy in any variation of beige. By contrast, upon arriving at the hotel by taxi from Louisville Airport, I was adrift in a sea of plaid shirts and John Deere baseball caps. Please note, other brands of baseball cap are available, though it was difficult to make that observation at this conference. <laughs> Having only previously attended farming conferences in the UK, I hadn't anticipated many of the American rituals. I hadn't expected such an emotive, knowledgeable and supportive opening speech from the Agriculture Commissioner for Kentucky. We merely dream of such utterances from politicians over here. I hadn't expected each day to begin with prayer, though I found the humility of these mainly men and some women wonderfully grounding. I'm sure fellow Lives contributor Alice Goodman would approve, as do I. Furthermore, it was heartwarming to see the way that family was openly cherished. Virtually every presentation began with a multi-generational family photo and an endearing description of how each family member had contributed to bringing the speaker to the stage. I also hadn't anticipated meeting a man known only as Rock, who told me, you'll love this, I wrote Trump 2020 in red millet across a quarter section field. Red millet is, of course, a grain species grown both for livestock and for human consumption. A US quarter section is an area of land half a mile by half a mile square. Needless to say, that is a significant endorsement of Donald Trump. And Rock gave me a taste of the special breed of Republican voter you encounter when you leave the US coastline. This is in no way a derogatory description, however. Despite their penchant for weaponry and huge trucks, the farmers I met were without exception great human beings. In fact, I received an almost overwhelming amount of warmth and welcome from interested and interesting farmers who fast became friends, issuing genuine and enthusiastic invitations to visit their homes and farms with my family on any future trip. What I had expected from the conference was a depth of knowledge of no-till farming system, unrivaled in the rest of the world, and it certainly delivered. No-till farming is in many ways the pinnacle of sustainability where, in order to preserve and build soil health and mimic natural processes, the soil is not tilled at any time. In 2022, we celebrate 60 years since Harry Young Jr. first developed the technique just a handful of miles from the conference venue, and his son and grandchildren were there to share their wisdom from the stage. Regular readers will be only too aware of my obsession with the soil, and I was in a room of like-minded farmers building for the future, fully aware that the key to storing atmospheric carbon and reversing climate change lies beneath our feet. Once again, however, the Americans raised the bar beyond my expectations, and I found myself in some fascinating breakout sessions entitled Making the Most of Manure, Assessing Soil Health Through Electrical Conductivity, and a standout seminar all about slugs. Yes, slugs. I reach planes of agro-geekery beyond my wildest dreams. Now, the four days of intense input left me challenged, motivated and dog-tired, but I couldn't wait to get back and start making changes on my farm, grounded in the knowledge I'd gained stateside. 
From a range of around 5,000 miles, our view of US agriculture is of intensive beef feedlots, genetically modified grains, and vast farmed deserts, patrolled by gas-guzzling mechanical giants. The bad old days of intense farming in the US made headlines around the world with soil blown away and fertilizers washed down the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico. Perhaps it is American farmers who are now the most motivated to remedy the situation. On my trip, I encountered a large cadre of knowledgeable environmentalists working with nature to produce food. And it left me wondering what those outside the UK and those outside farming but living in the UK think of farmers here. I and we clearly have a job to do to help people see what happens on the other side of the farm gate. We must share our vision for food production systems that work with nature to answer many of society's big questions. As Tom Martin enjoyed the warmth and enthusiasm of the American farming community, Sheila Hancock was searching for reasons to be cheerful. I am unutterably depressed. I have just watched the television news. In this single bulletin, I learned that one, a report has discovered that organized sexual abuse of children is still widespread. Two, Another report has disclosed casual racism, misogyny and homophobia are endemic in the police force. And three, clumsy diplomacy is in danger of leading us into war. An hour of misery viewing. Official focus groups and polls seem to dictate policy nowadays, but I surmise that I am not alone in feeling disturbed. There is a general unease. All that clapping for the NHS and general bonhomie has been abandoned and many of us are in a thoroughly bad mood. When a cyclist knocks me over on the footpath then yells at me for being in the way, I scream back, foot you prat, that's the operative sodding word. My blood pressure is beyond dead of a stroke level. I spend from 3am till 6am every night worrying about everything from the world coming to an end to that new, obviously cancerous pimple on my chin. Boris Johnson's desperation to be loved has led him to abandoning all the rules that he made and broke, but many people are alarmed by his volatility. Nothing is certain. The extremely vulnerable have been virtually abandoned. Unspeakable cruelty, especially towards children, resulting from being trapped for two years in overcrowded homes with no school to escape to, is coming to light. I begin to wonder whether Homo sapiens is actually worth saving from global warming. Maybe we should just frizzle away to be found millions of years hence by some better new species when their robotic diggers unearth a weird fragment of charred material. I must resort to my anti-depression modus operandi. When I despair about misled gangs storming the Capitol building in Washington or aggressive nutters attacking exhausted NHS workers, I remind myself of what some of the human species has achieved. I listen to Beethoven's Cavatina, which never fails to leave me sobbing with appreciation of its complex beauty. Maria Callas giving her all in Tosca. How dare that absurd Greek 
shipping magnet Aristotle Onassis not treat her like the goddess she was. Rennie Fleming, singing Rachmaninoff's vocalese, does superhuman things with her voice, as does Janet Baker in Dido's Lament. If I need to calm down, I listen to the second movement of Raphael's concerto, played by Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli, a pianist with whom I am besotted. I told John he was the only man for whom I would leave him. He felt the same about Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. Classical music thrills, comforts and amazes me. As a child, I had only heard popular music, a bit of the desert song and its ilk, sung by my mum and dad in the pubs where they lived and worked. My first revelation that there was something called classical music happened when I was about eight. Miss Winifred Scott endured an hour each week trying to persuade me to practice the piano. She was a very pale, quietly spoken lady who smelt of lavender. One day, she freaked out. I'd done no work and was picking my way clumsily through Claire de Lune when she put a record on the wind-up gramophone, pushed me off the piano stool and thundered her way through what I later discovered was the Greek piano concerto. It was a sort of primitive karaoke. Miss Scott was transformed into a passionate performer released for a while from the imprisonment of teaching snotty-nosed kids. I was transfixed. Then, at grammar school, another angel appeared bearing gifts that would enrich my life. Miss Tudor Craig took a lesson called Musical Appreciation. She would give a talk about a composer and then sit on the platform, her legs akimbo, exposing passion-killer knickers, to listen ecstatically to a record. The main reaction from the pupils was giggling and passing rude notes. Then, one day, she played the orgasmic fantasy overture to Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet. It's no longer a favourite, but when I was 12 years old, it took my breath away. I made her write down the composer's name and took it with my pocket money to the local music shop. They didn't have the record in stock and tried to interest me in other pieces, but I couldn't believe that there was anything else so lovely. I spent the rest of my life discovering that there is. If I want to remind myself of what human animals can do with their ungainly bodies, I look at a clip of Margot Fontaine and Rudolf Nureyev dancing together. There are other treasures in my comfort collection. Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone... I frequently laugh at and quote from the iconic film Withnail and I, we want the finest wines available to humanity, we want them here and we want them now. I watch the producers to see how brilliantly, with humour, a Jewish man, Mel Brooks, ridicules the perpetrators of one of the worst crimes in human history. So, Sheila, remember, lycra-clad cyclists, Nigel Farage, Old Etonians notwithstanding, in the words of one of the greatest, what a piece of work is a man. And all the other genders, of course. Sheila's great love of music is shared by Jason Thomas Vanillier, who hopes his GP doesn't find out about his Saturday night on the dance floor. 
Leaving my native land and seeking asylum in the UK has meant starting the social life anew. The reset button is activated and you are a baby in an extremely large jungle. Fortunately, I can adapt quickly. I love people and interacting with them, whether good or bad, there's always a lot to learn in these moments. In Doncaster, the social scene is like the archers, which I used to listen to on the radio as a kid back in Trinidad. I've been blessed to have an eccentric lot of friends who I call my family. Some were born and raised right here in Doncaster, and others are from Latvia, Poland, Romania, Italy, Hungary, and the Eastern Caribbean. My neighbour Dimitri is a 72-year-old man who came to Britain 30 years ago from Poland. He worked as a builder in Doncaster for 24 years. He got married, had two children, and now lives with his eldest son. Every Monday, we meet up for a pint, a laugh, and a chat. It's amazing how meeting one good-natured person can cancel out so many bad ones. We talk about anything and everything, from how things have changed so much in the UK and Doncaster, to our love of rugby and vodka. We get very rowdy at the pub when chatting. He's a rugby league fan, while I like rugby union. At politics, religion, and the sexual evolution of the new generation, and there's a lot to talk about. His son always says, we are two peas in a pod of trouble. I can talk to Dimitri about anything. He tells me straight and direct. I respect him for that. He gives me advice, especially about the issues I have with the Home Office on my asylum claim. He always tells me, Jason, no one here is going to save you. So you have to save yourself. This is one of many life mottos that I've learned from him. I love eating out when I can afford it. However, Dimitri is a creature of habit. So I have been bullying him into trying new things. Last Friday, we had dinner and drinks at an eatery that's recently opened called Jazz Cafe Bar and Restaurant. Man, did we have a great time. Live music, great cass ales, and the food was stellar. We drank like fishes. And when there's great music, my feet literally can't contain themselves. Moments like these are so precious and so blessed. Friendship is so important to me because when it comes to romantic relationships, it's complicated. Before coming to the UK, I was in a relationship for eight years in Trinidad. It was a struggle, as I lived openly as gay, while he didn't with his sexuality. That was a choice I fully respected. No one should be forced or peer pressured into revealing themselves to the world. You choose when the time is right for you. I think having to see the discrimination I went through on a daily basis put him off making that choice, which he hasn't made to this very day. 
We remain great friends, and that's what matters most. When you share your life with someone, you aren't guaranteed a happy ending. I've had some great times over my seven years here in the UK, but the dark cloud of uncertainty over my status has hindered me from having a long-term relationship. I don't know how long I can be here, or if I will ever be able to settle down. If I met the right guy, I would also want to be given the chance to earn my way, to be an equal partner in love. But my friends keep me going, going out with them, sharing my ups and downs. The good and the bad is therapy for my mind, body and soul. They can't even imagine the many ways that they have saved me. My friend Carrie took me on a Saturday night fiesta with tequila rained from the skies. Dear goodness, I hope my GP doesn't read this column. I do wish I had my own home where I could invite everyone back for a proper Southern Caribbean meal. Living in limbo isn't great, but you must make the best of what you have. I try a little every day to make myself happy with what I've got and the people I'm around. Whatever happens in my asylum claim, if I get to stay in the UK or not, I'll carry with me these great people I've met along the way. They are the joy of my life. Every moment I have the chance to spend with them, I take. While Jason reflects on the difficulties created by not being permitted to work, Psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence looks back on how stigma about her mental health affected her career. As a young doctor, I was admitted to a psychiatric hospital with severe depression. I recovered eventually and applied for jobs, driven by the fear that I would never be able to return to work. I wasn't surprised that I was initially rejected or offered a shorter contract to see if I would cope and just accepted this. Looking back, I have no doubt that I experienced discrimination in a way that, thanks to the 2010 Equality Act, would probably not happen now. But I don't think that stigma ever disappears, it just re-emerges in different ways. Stigma is born from the fear of what is different and threatening and can be seen in attitudes to people of different sex or gender, race, disability and many other human conditions. But does stigma only arise from the views of others, or can it also spring from the way people start to perceive themselves as disempowered or unworthy? In psychiatry, this so-called self-stigmatization implies that people create their own negative views of themselves and suffer as a result. This does happen, but I think it can also be an easy get-out for the fact that patients will absorb the opinions of others and internalise them. They don't create these views all by themselves. I was convinced that doctors and nurses thought badly of me when I was first ill, and this was because I had previously heard other staff criticise psychiatric patients, particularly those who were also health professionals. I'm not sure why this was, but there can be a belief that, as a doctor, one ought to know better and not end up on a psychiatric ward. 
So it wasn't a massive leap to assume the same might be said about me. And this could be described as self-stigmatisation. But to me, blaming patients for their own self-loathing just adds insult to injury. Many years later, I worked with a lovely nurse who had cared for me when I was first ill and asked her if she minded working with me after knowing me as a patient. Her response stuck with me. She asked why I hadn't moved away, to England, for example, given what had happened. There may be reasons to leave Scotland, but that is definitely not one of them. Diagnoses or labels can work both ways. Some people find a diagnosis validating, but not all diagnoses are viewed as equal, and some, like that of personality disorder, can add to patients' feelings of rejection and shame. I work in a large psychiatric hospital, mainly with patients with drug and alcohol dependence who are often viewed as less deserving or as having brought their problems on themselves. No one would choose the lives they live, but it is easier to blame them for it. Perhaps this makes us feel that what they are going through is less likely to happen to us. I also see many patients with severe schizophrenia, whose experiences bear almost no relation to the sanitised version of well-being and mental health issues that society presents to us. These are the patients who people cross the road to avoid, perhaps fearing them, alarmed by their often bizarre appearances. It makes me sad that I don't know what these patients think about stigma, whether they find it oppressive or not. They have little voice. My own diagnosis of bipolar disorder is relatively easy to bear, particularly because I am reasonably well most of the time. I look and sound normal, and I am accepted and known in the world of psychiatry. It's not all easy, though, and I still doubt my diagnosis and whether others believe it. Psychiatry isn't black and white, but my life is very different from when I was first ill. And how do I view others? Am I fair? The honest answer is that I don't know. Like everyone, my opinions are coloured by my experiences. I think my biggest mistake is that I don't always believe in my patients enough and so lose faith that they can get better. And sometimes I wrongly judge them by my own standards as a patient instead of accepting our differences. It's right to want to help people, especially when they are very ill, but also to remember that they are so much more than their diagnoses. I often think about the fact that I've been a patient in the same psychiatric hospital where I now work and remember the stigma I experienced. Denying it would be the first step towards stigmatising others and that's something I never want to do. While Rebecca advocates for nuance in psychiatry, Serena Smith considers the positive side of the internet and questions whether strolling through TikTok is really a waste of time. I have always loved the internet. I remember whiling away hours of my childhood tending to my Cy Bunny on Neopets, browsing the website Weeble Stuff, where animator Jonty Picking shares silly videos and songs, and listening to the Llama song on repeat on the family computer. Today, I'm more likely to scroll through Twitter or Instagram but the thrill of going online remains the same. That unparalleled pleasure of giving in to the magnetic pull of the blue light. Ironically, 
Given the novelty of the internet, the emotion is so intense, it feels almost primal. As a zillennial, I fall on the cusp of the generational boundary between millennials and Gen Z. I'm just old enough to remember when going on the computer constituted a fully-fledged hobby. There was a brief period before social media really took off, when memes were inside jokes shared between the select few who were already online. I remember taking care to never use my real name, reveal what country I lived in, or upload any photos of myself, as scare stories about online stranger danger abounded. Now, the excitement of going on the computer has been extinguished, and being online feels mundane. It's rare that I send a meme to someone who hasn't already seen it, as 4G and mobile phones allow us to be perpetually online. I have shed the anonymity and the pseudonyms, and my name and location are visible to the public on all my social media platforms. I have also uploaded countless photos of my face in Facebook albums which harbour hundreds of blurry photos taken at parties on my old digital camera. Often, discussions about social media stoke moral panics, focusing exclusively on the risks and negatives. Doubtless, some will bristle at the thought that I spent hours of my childhood drawing on Microsoft Paint until my eyes stung, but I don't think I've been damaged by this. I still forged connections and friendships with people in real life. I still concentrated at school. I can't say my mental health suffered directly because of the internet. Sometimes, I spend a whole evening on Twitter when I had planned to read a book. But mostly, I feel in control of my relationship with technology. I can focus on my work and be present with my friends and family without impulsively checking my phone every 12 minutes, the national average. At the same time, I'm not naive enough to argue that it's always so straightforward. I joined Instagram shortly after it launched, in my late teens. As the years passed, it became increasingly apparent that people were using the app to present a curated highlights reel, rather than their real lives. At the age of 17, I remember obsessing over whether the colours on my feed complemented each other, as well as whether I was giving off the impression that I had an exciting life. Sometimes I kid myself into thinking that I no longer think about stuff like this, but my mismatched, anti-aesthetic Instagram feed is still curated, only this time I'm trying to appear as though I'm too cool to care. Some tech companies deliberately make their apps addictive. It's almost impossible to pull away from apps where you can scroll infinitely, such as the world's most popular app, TikTok, where endless 15-second videos are delivered to your screen based on an algorithm that predicts with astonishing accuracy exactly what you want to see next. You can't complete social media, and that's the way these companies want it. The longer you stay on their apps, the more ads you see, and the more profit they make. I worry that younger people are not always aware of this. While there are plenty of compelling arguments against social media, especially when the safeguarding of young people is concerned. I don't buy the suggestion that apps are rotting our brains. People often describe getting sucked into TikTok as a waste of time, but I think this reveals a depressing attitude towards time. Why does all our free time have to be productive or geared towards self-optimization? Does everything we do need to have purpose? It would be reductive to imply that flicking through videos or scrolling through Twitter is some sort of radical, anti-capitalist act. But can't we consume content for no other reason than because we like it? My screen time has steadily declined in recent years, and I'm trying to use my phone less, but not necessarily because it saps my time. Instead, I'm just chasing that rare thrill from all those years ago, the sweet excitement of going online. 
In the church, the questions of housing and vocation have been grafted together for centuries, as Alice Goodman explains. Like the Prime Minister, I live in a tied house. Clergy housing goes with the job. That's a source of both security and anxiety. I was appointed to this post four months before my family would have been made homeless at the end of a fixed-term chaplaincy. Do you have a vocation or do you just want a house? asked a bishop who shall remain nameless. Both, I said, and meant it. This was not my first brush with the perils of clergy housing. As a first-year curate with two dogs, three cats, and two dependent people, one young and one old, I had to move to a parish without a curate's house. By a stroke of luck, I found a place for rent. It was in bad repair, but we were grateful to have it, at least until the bathtub cracked and sent water streaming through the light fixture in the hall downstairs. More than one curate in the Church of England right now is becoming homeless as a curacy comes to an end without another job on the horizon. The rectory I live in now is built in the walled garden of the old rectory. The front garden is big enough for Muntjac to take up residence for the summer without anyone noticing. The back garden is even bigger. There are five ancient apple trees there apparently dying, but still bearing excellent fruit every year, much like the church. There's a massive, a hundred-year-old fig tree, which bears beautiful big leaves, but drops every one of its figs unripe at the end of June, also much like the church, I sometimes think. And there's the green Adirondack chair, where my husband sat and read and wrote poems for the last five years of his life. Around the villages of my parish, there is an old rectory, a former rectory, and an old vicarage. All are handsome, well-maintained, and in private hands. Thousands of clergy houses were sold by the Church of England during the 20th century, and it's often said that they were sold for very little. It's true that those magnificent houses and their gardens were nearly impossible to maintain without staff and completely impossible to keep warm on a clergy stipend. It's also true that they meant a lot to their parishes and their withdrawal from the public realm cut another of the ties that held people and church together. The whole notion of what a vicarage is for has shrunk. The house, be it rectory, vicarage, or curate's house, is first of all a dwelling place. The study in these new clergy houses is often a converted garage. It's supposed to have a separate entrance, creating a boundary for the space where work and meetings take place. The gardens are, as a rule, much smaller. You couldn't host a fate in one, and nobody would expect you to. On the other hand, if you're blessed with a family that uses strong language, your neighbour might well overhear and write a letter of complaint to the bishop. This happened to a curate of my acquaintance. The first family to live where I'm living now had three wild daughters who carved their names into the bricks along the drive, jumped off the garage roof, 
and had their wedding receptions in the huge garden. They remember it with great affection. The next family was more domestic and cherished their privacy. They have fond recollections of the larder and the linen cupboard. People had keys and came and went. Marriage preparation, confirmation classes, and parochial church council meetings all took place in the sitting room, and the dining room, I'm told, housed the photocopier and the parish magazine. A third had the interior of the house painted entirely in a rich, deep red, like Hell Hall and 101 Dalmatians. The meetings and the parties continued. In my time, the Benefice Pancake Party was the great event, with multiple frying pans on the go, and people spread out throughout all the ground floor. Then lunches would follow, with soup and bread and an apple, and a basket to collect money for Christian aid. It was for events like these that the rectory was built. People still come to the rectory, sometimes to ask for money or help, or to offer money or help to others. They come when something bad has happened. They come to complain, and they come bearing gifts. People come to plan weddings and funerals, and to think about the shape their lives will take afterwards. My colleagues come for meetings, or they did until we started having them on Zoom. Parties? Good heavens. I haven't been able to offer more than a lousy cup of tea here since March 2020. While Alice reflects on the history of her parish, Mike Brayley looks back on the pervasive problem of racism in cricket. Racism is a horrible prejudice. Its most common form in Britain is that inflicted by white people on people of colour. It has often been combined with colonialism, exploitation and class superiority. For hundreds of years, it was used to justify slavery. The psychological origins of racism are complex, but we could start with insecurity and the wish to push into others aspects of ourselves that we can't bear, especially powerlessness. The allegations of racism by cricketer Azim Rafiq and the small-minded reactions of his club Yorkshire have put the sport under the microscope. In November, Rafiq gave evidence to Parliament about inhuman racist treatment he'd endured in the dressing room. All I wanted to do, he said, was play cricket. Instead, he was left suicidal. Given their shared imperial origins, cricket and racism have a long history. In the late 1960s, there was an even more controversial series of events. Basil de Oliveira, born in South Africa of Indian-Portuguese ancestry, had scored 158 for England against Australia in the fifth test at the Oval. Two days later, he was left out of the team for the upcoming tour of South Africa. This omission appeared to me to have been made to appease the apartheid regime and to ensure that the tour took place. I seconded a motion of no confidence in the MCC's handling of the affair and soon became convinced 
that international sporting events against South African teams selected on a whites-only basis should be discontinued. At the time, this was not a popular view in the cricket world. But I had, and have, more to learn. In the late 1970s and early 80s, I captained a Middlesex team that included several black players, Wayne Daniel, Roland Butcher, Will Slack, Norman Cowens, Neil Williams and Dennis Marriott. Most of the time, race seemed irrelevant to me. We were a team engaged in an activity we loved, energetically arguing with each other, mostly constructively, though the teasing could get nasty. But there were racial issues in the team, as there were in wider society. The atmosphere in the country was toxic. In 1981, the Toxteth race riots took place during the Ashes. Enoch Powell was still a malignant force. Enoch was right, graffiti were being smeared on walls. As a captain, pervasive stereotypes complicated my interactions with players. I would sometimes ask a player whether he felt fit enough to play in the next match. We had to make judgments about how realistic he was in relation to his own body. Baseless assumptions that black bowlers were less willing than white bowlers to play through pain put black players under special scrutiny. Occasionally, I felt conflicted. If I were to ignore this assumption, would I be naive? But if I challenged a black player's doubts about his own fitness, was I subscribing to a racist stereotype? Roland Butcher had come to England from Barbados in 1968 when he was 13. It must have been a shock to arrive in a cold, foggy, and often racist England. He was an extremely talented cricketer. We called him Hoover for his ability to gather up the ball in the field, and he was a beautiful stroke player. However, in his early days, he often got out for low scores. During extensive conversations, especially on long car journeys, I said he needed to be more aggressive in his own defence, in standing up for himself both against racist assumptions inside and outside the dressing room and with a bat in his hand on the pitch. He became the first black cricketer to play for England. Fakri Davids, a psychoanalyst and colleague of mine in London, born in South Africa, wrote that... To be black in a white world is an agony. It has taken most white people a long time and the Black Lives Matter movement to begin to understand how traumatic this can be. We need to do our best to empathise. Some younger people go further, arguing that it is not just difficult but actually impossible for white people to empathise with victims of racism, a view that I don't fully agree with. Davids continues, To be black, you're seldom allowed to be an ordinary, regular human being. Instead, hidden stereotypes 
that can spring to life in a flash, push violently into you, destabilize you, and make you feel, think, and act in ways that are wholly determined from outside. Close quote. This comment reveals how racism impedes self-respect and authenticity, exactly what I felt was inhibiting Butcher. It also reveals, I suggest, that white people, including of an older generation like me, should do more than refrain from speaking or writing about race. Being allowed to be an ordinary regular human being implies being free to speak and be spoken to with frankness. Honest exchanges are often helpful, provided that we're willing to listen and learn without becoming defensive. Moreover, notwithstanding how inadequate Yorkshire's earlier responses to Rafiq's complaints were, originally racist abuse was classified as mere banter, the county's later sacking of 16 employees, including all the coaching staff, apparently without proper hearings, amounted to collective punishment. There were no second chances. At least one sacked person has needed police protection. As well as holding people to account, we need to respect context. The Indian-American psychoanalyst Salman Akhtar reports that, after giving a talk in Pittsburgh, he was approached by a white analyst who told him, I have listened to your talk today and to others of yours before. I think you can teach us a lot because you are not one of us. You are from a different culture and see things with a fresh eye. Akhtar writes that the words, you are not one of us, uttered by a man of lesser dignity and clean-heartedness, would have come across as prejudicial, even racist. However, the way he puts it, Akhtar continues, I find touching and feel myself well understood and validated. What appears at first sight politically incorrect, even racist, was neither wrong nor hurtful. Roland Butcher might have taken offence at what I said or the way I said it. Had he done so, I hope I would have pulled back. If the conversations had happened today and had been made public, this could have given me a bad name. It still could. On the other hand, had I remained silent, I would have left him unprotected against the projections that had been forced onto him. Rigid political correctness risks making the wall between people more impenetrable, as happened for decades in Northern Ireland. We need to work and talk together, multiracially and multigenerationally. We have to be sensitive in what we say, but also say what we feel. It helps if we have some understanding of why people become racists and why none of us is free of biases. Today, outrage is ready to hand. We're inclined to lose touch with what Seamus Heaney called, in his poetry, subtleties and tolerances. 
we're inclined to cast stones of silence, as he puts it, stones of condemnation and of complicity. Before expressing an opinion, we seek hints of the allegiances of others. We wear the tight gag of place and time. And none of us who, loudly or silently, throws the first stone, or for that matter, the second, is without sin. Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in March and tune into our regular podcast every Wednesday. If you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives columnists, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand now. Or go to our website where you can enjoy reading from Emily Maitlis, Alex von Tunzelman, Peter Ricketts, David Hare and many more. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next time.